you've brought us and you've drawn us near through Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed on the cross. Thank you for this time to remember that sacrifice, Lord. And as we go now to your scripture and to your word, to hear what our brother James has to say to us today, I pray that we come with open hearts and minds to receive this message, Lord. It's in your wonderful and precious name we pray. Amen. I know that I often mention the fact that I participate in run, or just to be honest, walk, in many obstacle course races. I share these because I've learned so many things over the years. I've, I've met some amazing people. I've heard their stories. I've bonded some friendships. But I have a confession to make to you. Last August, I, I learned a really tough lesson. I had the opportunity to run again in the Tough Mudder obstacle course race at Saralan Park, just right outside of town. Now, this type of race really exists more to bond and to build a team atmosphere. There are many obstacle course races that are designed for the individual experience. But this one is all about having at least one other person there with you. And it's even better if you have a whole entire team. And the reason behind this is that there are several obstacles that do require team effort. Or at least they're, they're significantly easier if you are together and working on it as a team. Well, having completed several obstacle courses over the years, I've, I've gained just a little bit of experience. The problem is that when we gain a little bit of experience, that, can, that downplays our nerves a little bit, which is not really a bad thing. That, that makes us more comfortable. But it can bring something else with it. When we gain more comfortable, we can sometimes easily slip into a state of pride. Well, running alongside some friends and some family, we traverse several obstacles, some with ease, some with a bit of a challenge. And there was one point on the course where I decided to kind of walk a little bit ahead of my, uh, my friends and to kind of scope out the upcoming obstacles. And so I came across this one called Lumberjacked. And I'll show you a picture of that right up here. It's a, it's a series of logs or wood planks that increase in height the further you go along. Now, at first look, they don't really seem to be that high. And they look like they might be somewhat easy to get over. Some individuals like this guy can clear them with ease, while others kind of need at least a, a leg up or a boost up. Well, having gone over these before and watching several other people just jump nimbly over them, I kind of thought to myself, I, I got this. I can take care of this. I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll get through these, and then I'll wait for my team on the other side. So I cleared the first two logs pretty well, and when I got to the third one, I thought I would clear it just like this guy in the picture, in the next picture. I just kind of pushed myself up, eased my legs over, nothing to it, right? I bet you get, can't guess what happened. <laughs> I pushed up, I lifted my legs, I thought this is, oh, I just felt it, it was just, I was going right over that log, and I caught my foot, and I could just, it felt, everything just went really slow. You've seen those moments in movies where they slow down the action so you see every single sequence, that's what it felt like. Everything, everything just got really slow as my hands slipped off the logs, and I start tumbling forward, looking right at the ground. 
And at that point, I knew I had, a, I had a choice. I could just continue my current trajectory. I would probably land on my face and my head and probably injure myself pretty badly, or I could attempt to turn and at least land on my back. It still wouldn't feel great, but it would be better than my face, right? So I, in my, the slow motion sequence I was in, I slowly turned. I didn't get the full motion, and I landed right on my shoulder, full weight and everything around there. Knocked the wind completely out of me. I was laying on the ground. <laughs> my teammates came up on me, and they're like, are you okay? And, and I did what a lot of people would do. I jumped up. I'm fine. Kind of brushed it off. I'm okay. Well, let's, let's get on with this. And I think it was because of all that adrenaline rushing through my body that I was able to push forward in this race, and I did a lot of stretching of my arm, but what I really learned was that <laughs> my pride took a big hit that day. After the race was over and I got rested up, I spent the next six to eight months taking it easy to repair my sprained shoulder and my back. And I can laugh about it now. I mean, it's, it sounds hilarious, and if I had seen it, I probably would have got a little bit of a chuckle watching myself fall as hard as I did. And there are so many passages of scripture that kind of come to my mind. One specifically, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, where it says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And in this case, my pride took an enormous hit. And I lived out this verse in a literal sense. My pride led to a physical fall. But what about you? I know this may be a rhetorical question, but have you ever had a humiliating or at least humbling experience that you've kind of learned to laugh at now? One just like this in which your pride led to something just completely ridiculous and silly? Well, pride in itself is at the root of the passage that we, we will be reading from today in James chapter 4. Now, as we've discussed in the previous weeks, James is writing to a group of persecuted Christians who have also fallen on tough financial times. Now, this audience has, has also had a tendency to kind of show favoritism, as Virgil discussed last week. Infighting was very prevalent, and James has had a lot to say about that already. Our Father's Day message from chapter 3 discussed modeling wisdom from God and modeling selflessness and modeling peace. We're to seek God's wisdom and not what the world calls wisdom. We then discussed James's statements in chapter 2 regarding his encouragement and warning to embrace God's wisdom and to show that they've done this by the good works that are produced in their lives as a result. That faith in action. Well, having laid a strong background and framework in the previous chapters, James now turns his attention to chapter 4, to this idea of the infighting previously mentioned and why we are always at odds with each other. There is a way in which we can handle these conflicts, a way in which we can handle these quarrels, but we need to understand how to be peacemakers. And this also involves an understanding for the reasons behind the fights and the conflicts that we have. So let's see if we can't pick up the reasons and the, really what causes these fights and conflicts when we read verse 1 through 6 of James chapter 4 together. What causes fights and quarrels among you? 
Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Your desires, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scriptures say God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. James does not shy away from some really challenging and difficult statements. He just says it like it is. And did you catch the root cause of quarrels and fights? It's what? It's desire. Desire itself is just the pursuit of our own selfish ambition. James is reminding us that desire or selfishness ruins lives and causes division. I mean, a life that is dominated by desire and selfishness has certain consequences. Because the basic desires that people have, we're talking about money and power and prestige and physical possessions and gratification of physical desires, because we, we desire those same things, when everybody is striving to get them, life in, inevitably becomes a competition. And people can easily disregard those around them, and they'll do anything they can to get what they want. Which is why James says you fight and you wage war to take it from them. The craving for human pleasures push people to do horrible and shameful things. Think, for instance, about the steps in the process called ruling passion. We allow ourselves to desire and to crave for something. Then those desires and cravings devour our thoughts, causing us to think about them when we're awake and dream about them in our sleep. We take those thoughts and devise schemes of obtaining our desire, which leads to thoughts about ways in which to remove the obstacles in our way. Oftentimes, that means removing the people in our way. This may go on and on for some time until one day these ruling passions burn forth into action as we take horrible steps to obtain these desires. The crimes in our world come from desires and feelings in the heart that have been nourished long enough to end in terrible action. Ultimately, one of the, the biggest consequences of our cravings for desire and for pleasure shut the door on our prayers, too. We become too prideful, often not even asking God what we truly need because we feel as if we can just obtain it on our own. Or worse yet, our prayers are simply selfish and they're only said to gratify our own desires. James finishes out this section in verse six by addressing pride. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This quote comes from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, and it's also made again in 1 Peter 5, 5. But what kind of pride is this destructive? The Greek word here used for proud literally means to show oneself above other people. 
This pride closes us off from God because it does not recognize its own need. We are blind to the true needs that we have and we think that we need independence. And we don't want to feel indebted to anyone, especially not God. This sort of pride doesn't even recognize its own sins. Instead, thoughts of its own goodness flood the mind. And this sort of pride plagues individuals because it causes them not to receive help because they don't see their own need and will not ask. Kind of like my example from the beginning, right? I felt like I didn't need help. I couldn't see my own shortcomings, and therefore, I didn't ask, which led me to a humbling experience and a sore shoulder for months. So now what? What does all this mean? Well, just like we discussed in previous weeks, we understand and know that we need to put our faith into action. We know that we need to model godly wisdom, we need to model selflessness, and we need to model peace. But how do we do that? How can we overcome our own selfish desires? How can we resist the wisdom from the world and the prideful schemes of our enemy, the devil? Well, thankfully, James gives us the answer. Answers that may seem simple, but in fact can take a great deal of effort. Our three instructions are as follows. Number one, submit to God. James chapter four, verse seven says, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit or submission is a difficult command and it's a difficult world because it calls us to put our own will aside and follow the will of someone else. The Greek word here used for submit comes from a military term meaning to get into the proper rank and to follow orders. And when looking at it from this perspective, it seems pretty clear. A private wouldn't stand against a general in terms of rank. Unconditional surrender is the only way to find victory with God. So think about those areas in your own life that you've tried to kind of keep back and hide from God. How are those battles going? Submission to God means surrendering our own desires. And the true culmination of prayer is to say to God, not my will, but your will be done, God. Submission to God means asking God to reveal to you what his will is for your life. It means doing everything in our power to run from selfishness. Remember, Our selfish desires lead to wrong actions and to wrong praying. And if our desires are not what God desires, then we're usually unhappy. Why? Because we strive to obtain things we don't really need. When we finally achieve them, we may enjoy them for a while, but often what happens? Well, we desire more. We never enjoy life. Instead of being thankful for the blessings we do have, we complain about the blessings we don't have. And we can't get along with other people because we always covet what others have. Sometimes we even use prayer as an excuse for not aligning our will with God's will. We might utter the words, but I prayed about it. Instead of asking God for him to reveal his will for our lives, we tell God what he is supposed to do And what he is supposed to give us. And then we get mad at God when we don't get it from him. 
And then we're bitter and we're angry towards others and we quarrel and we fight. But obedience to God will actually draw people together. God desires unity. Our mind, our emotions, and our will should work together and align with his. And if we put our selfish desires aside and seek to do God's will, then this will cause us to be resilient against our enemy. He will flee. Why? Because if anyone truly stands up to and against the devil, the devil will run away. In the book, The Shepherd of Hermas, it's said that the devil can wrestle against the Christian, but he cannot throw him. 1 Peter 5, 8-9, Peter says, Be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the entire world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Our greatest example of how to resist the devil comes from Jesus himself. Jesus was tempted in the desert, and and Jesus showed us that our enemy is not invincible. And when he's confronted with God's word, he'll run away. But that brings us to our next point. If we submit to God, we should also, instruction number two, draw near to God. After all, we fight against our enemy not with our own will, but with God's will and with God's power. James chapter four, verse eight, James goes on, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify, purify your hearts you double-minded. So how do we draw near to God? Well, we confess our sins and our shortcomings to him and ask him to cleanse us. Because we're all sinners, this appeal is to every single one of us. James demands us to reform not only our minds and our wills, but also our outer conduct. On the surface, cleansing our hands seems to be nothing more than a physical washing. His original audience would have been familiar with this idea as the priests were required to wash and bathe themselves before entering into his service. A physical cleansing before the presence of God. But just as we do now, God's people eventually understood that God required so much more than a physical cleansing of the body. So this concept and this phrasing came to stand for a moral purity. This idea of washing began with people seeing it as a physical cleansing of the outward appearance, a ritual practice. But it ended by understanding and seeing that God was demanding more. He was demanding a moral cleansing, not a ritual. Biblical cleansing requires a cleansing of the lips, of the heart, and of the mind. In other words, a a person's words, a person's emotions and thoughts should all be purified. Pastor and author and editor A.W. Tozer put it this way when discussing purification and closeness with God. He says that the more we are like God, the nearer we are to God. Now, I may be sitting on the couch with my dog by my side, 
and my wife and children may be in the other room completely, yet I am nearer to my wife and to my children than I am my dog, because my dog is unlike me. We have very little in common. God, in his goodness and grace, draws near to us when we deal with the sins in our lives that keep us distant from him. The third and final instruction James gives us is an even more challenging one. James says twice in this passage that we are to humble ourselves. So instruction number three, humble yourself. James chapter four, verse nine through 10, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The will of the world is at conflict with God. Our, godly, our ungodly desires fight against the Holy Spirit. And pride is one of the greatest enemies of submission to God. It's one of the devil's greatest sins, which is why he wants us to depend on ourselves instead of depending on God. Satan enjoys inflating our egos and he encourages us to do things our own way. It's even possible for us to submit our wills outwardly, yet still not be humbled inside. And we know how God feels about pride. He hates it. We often have this tendency to, to treat sin too lightly. Maybe we even laugh about it, but James says that this laughter should turn to mourning. Sin is serious, and one act or mark of real humility is admitting the seriousness of sin and dealing with it. Now, in this passage, James is recalling Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes. Jesus specifically said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But we mustn't read into James's passage as if he's saying that we should be unhappy and, and unjoyful as Christians. He isn't saying that we need to live a life filled with doom and gloom. What James is rather saying is that we should restrain ourselves from selfish desires of excessive comfort. He is speaking to people who are in love with the world and the physical things in it, and he's pleading with them not to make this luxury and comfort the standard in which all of our lives are judged. After all, if not for discipline and study, a scholar would not be produced. If not for difficult and physically demanding training, an athlete would not be produced. James is describing our walk of faith as Christians and the steps involved. The first step of the Christian life involves confrontation with the weight of our own sin and with God. This realization of the devastation of sin in our own lives and of the, and of the sin's causes and devastation on other people's lives move us to this weightlifting joy of our sins forgiven. He demands that we should weep for sin's devastation and consequences on others. The griefs and needs of others should affect us so much as to cause us to tear down our own pleasure and comfort. Why do you think that commercials for organizations like Feed the Children and Compassion and others shake us to our core? Because they cause us deep sorrow and grief. And understand if they don't 
that they should. We should be conscious of our own sin, mourn for them, and become conscious of the world's needs and weep for them also. James concludes this section with a demand to humble ourselves. Sometimes as believers, we do ask God to humble us. But understand that if we ask God, he will do that. It would be far better for us to humbly confess to God our own sins, cry over them, and do our best to turn away from them. Proverbs 29, 23, pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. Said another way, pride brings humiliation, but those who are humble in spirit will gain honor. Only when we realize our own ignorance will we be able to ask God for guidance. Only when we realize the things that we're truly poor in and our weaknesses will we pray for God's grace and pray for his strength. Only when we realize the weight of our own sin will we realize our need for a savior and for God's forgiveness. It's this kind of dependence on God, submitting to him, drawing close to him by trying to be more like him and humbling ourselves before him. It's this strong of a dependence that produces real independence and freedom. It is in this time that we face life with God's strength rather than our own. So if we obey all these instructions, if we draw near to God, we submit to him, if we humble ourselves before him, then God will draw near to us. He will purify us. He will forgive us. Then something amazing will happen. Those fights and those quarrels, they'll end. We won't be at odds with God, so we won't be at war with ourselves and with others. And what will be produced as a result? Selflessness. Humility, peace. So where are you at? What's been your struggle? Who do you want to please? What will you choose? Human pleasure or God's will? And understand that if you pursue the things of this world, if you pursue selfish ambitions, it does put you at enmity with God and with others. But I want you to know that God longs for a loving relationship with you. In fact, James reminds us that God has put a spirit within us for the single purpose of connecting us to his spirit. But maybe you've spent your life pursuing the wrong things, the pleasures and the things of this world, and you find that they're unfulfilling, and you understand that you're missing out on this amazing relationship with God. It's okay. It's not too late. He'll shower more grace upon you, but you must humble yourself before him. So right now, stop the arrogance. Stop trying to defend your choices in your mind and just humble yourself before God. And what are some things that you can do to humble yourself? Well, find a way to serve Maybe here in Ogleville or in your community. Don't be afraid to kind of get your hands dirty physically and metaphorically. Clean up, fix up, help those in need. And humbly pray. Ask God to show you the things that he cares about. Ask him to help change your attitudes towards others. 
one of the biggest acts of submission in the process of our confession of faith and baptism. It's an outward, physical, and spiritual cleansing, an expression of our desire to be more like Jesus, to draw near to God in Christ. And if this is you today and you have a decision to make, I pray that you'll come forward as we stand and we sing our song of invitation. Thank you.